the hardest thing about being a forecaster it's not knowing history or they got no history it's not knowing politics or you got no politics it's not knowing math or they got no math it's putting aside your own political preferences you're obviously a democrat you said trump would win in 2016 when people thought you were crazy for choosing trump i was extremely unpopular i did get a note and it said professor congrats good call donald j trump you want to see it <laughs> you gotta let me see it <laughs> there it is so let's talk about the 13th it's what we call a very robust model that's lasted through enormous change the civil war the Great Depression, World War II. We just looked at patterns. It's brilliant when you think about it. Judgments here have to be objective and nonpartisan. All I need to do is say true or false. So if it's false, that's one key against them. The party mandate, which side do you choose with that? No primary contest, incumbency, third party, short-term economy, long-term economy. Seven is policy change, social unrest, scandal number nine foreign military failure, challenger's charisma, which is Biden, incumbent charisma. That one I count as false. You gotta have charisma for advertisers to say, my what's your track record of predicting elections? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. The most important thing you have as president is your credibility and the rest is history. So my guest today is a historian, and on top of that, he got his PhD from Harvard and wrote a couple books. He's read many of them, but he wrote a couple books. One was called The Keys to the White House, and the other one recently, uh, the title is The Case for Impeachment. In his book, he met a Russian man, which I'll let him tell you the whole story, that helped him come out with the model based on three indicators to determine who can win the White House. And since 1984, every single time he's got it right, and it's not one-sided. It was five Republicans, four Democrats. Even though he's a Democrat, he'll tell you up front, he still chose five Republicans and four Democrats. So he's on a nine-game winning streak. And with that being said, my guest today, Alan Lickman. Alan, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. My great pleasure. So, Alan, how do you, how do you and this uh, uh, friend of yours that you met, tell <laughs> us that story. How did this happen to come up with these 13 indicators? Yeah, I'd love to tell you I came up with them with my brilliant thinking. But if I were to tell you that, to quote the late, not so great Richard Nixon, that would be wrong. In 1981, I was a distinguished visiting scholar at the California Institute of Te Technology in Pasadena. Right. And there I met the Russian, Vladimir Kailas Borak, the world's leading authority on earthquake prediction, the head of the Institute of Pattern Recognition and Earthquake Prediction in Moscow. And he suggested we collaborate. And being foresightful, of course, I said, we're not going to collaborate. Earthquakes may be a big deal here in Washington, D.C., but I have to go back, excuse me, in Southern California, but I have to go back to Washington, D.C. Nobody cares about earthquakes. That's there. Right. You know, I teach at American University. And he said, I don't want to do earthquakes. I already solved that. Yeah, right. Get this. He said in 1963, under President John F. Kennedy, he was part of the Soviet scientific delegation that negotiated the most important treaty in the history of the world. Wow. By far, the nuclear test ban treaty mm -hmm. that stopped us from poisoning the atmosphere, the oceans, and the earth. And he said... I fell in love with politics, and I always wanted to use the methods of earthquake prediction to predict elections. But he said, look, I live in the Soviet Union. Elections? Forget it. 
it's supreme leader or off with your head. But you know all about elections. So we became the odd couple of political research. And I can tell you what happened after that if you want to know. I want to know about it. Tell me. Okay. So our key insight was to reconceptualize presidential elections in earthquake geophysical terms. Remember, this is 1981, not as Carter versus Reagan, not as Republican versus Democrat, not as liberal versus conservative, but as stability, the party in power keeps the White House, and earthquake, the party in power is turned out. So the second big insight was we were going to base our model on the idea that American presidential elections are essentially votes up or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House, should we give them four more years. And mm -hmm. so based on those two ideas, we looked at every American presidential election from 1860, the horse and buggy days of politics, when Abraham Lincoln was elected, to 1980, the modern era, when Ronald Reagan was elected, and using the methods of pattern recognition to see what patterns are associated with stability and earthquake, we came up with our 13 key indicators, the 13 keys to the White House and our simple decision rule. If six or more of the keys go against the party holding the White House, they are predicted losers. Any six, it's a nonlinear system. I then first use the keys, if you want to hear about that next, in 1982 to make my first advanced prediction. And, and you made that two years before the election. I mean, it wasn't like you made the uh, prediction three months prior to the election. In 82, Not at all. Prediction, nobody was expecting that. Nobody. It was in April of 1982, almost three right. years right. before the election, uh, you know, two and a half years before the election. And I predicted the re-election of Ronald Reagan. Now, mind you, I am a Democrat, and I'm very clear that my predictions are predictions, not endorsements. You've always and been this, a Democrat. This is not like you change parties. You've always been a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. Okay, you know, I went to Brandeis University in the 1960s, hotbed of radicalism. And I was a Bobby Kennedy Democrat then, which put me on the way on the right wing back in the 60s. I'm still a Bobby Kennedy Democrat, which I guess puts me now on the left. It's very strange what happens. At any rate, so I predicted Ronald Reagan's re-election in the midst of what was then the worst recession since the Great Depression. Everyone was talking about a one-term president. And it caught someone's attention. I get a call in my office in 1982 from a gentleman with a heavy Southern accent. And he says, Professor Lickman, this is Lee Atwater calling political director of the Ronald Reagan White House. We want you to come to the White House. And I said, well, maybe, maybe you got the wrong guy. You know, I kind of like George McGovern. He says, no, we know who you are. So I go to the White House. And Lee Atwater is a brilliant guy, dirty trickster, who actually died very young and recanted all his dirty tricks. And he wanted to know about Kennedy versus Nixon and other elections. But at the end of the day, he looked me in the eye and asked me the question, which was really why he brought me there. He said, Professor Lickman, what would happen if Ronald Reagan didn't run again in 1984? A reasonable question for a man in his 70s. 
and I'm thinking, oh, the damage. No, I'll give it to you straight. Remember, six keys and you're out. Right now, I predicted a Reagan win with only three keys against him. But look what happens if he doesn't run again. You lose the incumbency key. You lose the internal party contest key because Bush and Robertson and Kemp will fight like crazy. And without the Gipper, you lose the incumbent charisma key. You know, George Bush, charismatic. He's about as charismatic as a shopping center on a Sunday morning in Passaic, New Jersey, you know. So you go from a sure win to a sure loss. Lee Atwater looks me in the eye, sighs a big relief and says, thank you so much, Professor Lichtman. And the rest is history. That was how I first got into the prediction uh, business. Yeah, and I see this. You you started off with Reagan, then you went Bush, Clinton, Clinton, Bush, Bush, Obama, Obama, Trump, Biden. And I think at one point, you had the only thing that was a little bit off was the Al Gore one, right? 2000, exactly. You know, what was the right prediction in 2000? There wasn't one. I predicted Gore would win the popular vote. He then loses Florida by 537 votes. It was a stolen election, as I proved in my 2001 report to the distinguished United States Commission on Civil Rights. It's still on their website. And as other scholars have proven, uh, Bush only won that election because of the discarding and suppression of tens of thousands of African-American votes who are 95% Democratic. Uh, Gorsh should have won even the Electoral College going away. So I think I came about as close as you can get. You know, if I predicted Bush, people would be bashing me for saying, oh, you predicted Bush, but he only won because he stole the election. You know, an impossible election to call. Makes sense. Now, now here's a question for you. This is just off topic. When you went back with Vladimir and you ran this from 1860 to 1980, how bad did Reagan beat Carter on his first term? Because I know it was 49 out of 50 states. When you ran it on the 13th, do you remember what it was when it was him against Carter? Yes, it, it was, I think, eight or nine keys out against Carter. Remember, Carter was the incumbent, and sure. the polls were inconclusive. Sure. The polls weren't telling you what was going to happen, yeah. and Reagan wound up winning by 10 points. It wasn't quite the blowout in 1984, but it was a pretty bad blowout. No one since 1984 has won by 10 points, and he also overwhelmingly won the Electoral College. Yeah, 1984 was the one where, you know, he wasn't really going out there and campaigning and everybody was kind of like, he's going to win it no matter what. And then last minute, his people are telling him, listen, you better get out there and campaign or else you could lose this one. And then he got to work. But uh, it's interesting seeing how it was. By the way, out of all the indicators you guys went through, you and Vladimir, was there anything that was swept? Did anybody get swept 13 for 13 or no? Once. Who? And that was retrospective. Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt in 1904, he was the incumbent. He had become president when William McKinley was killed, assassinated, and he had a perfect score. No keys out against him. And he was running against the most obscure presidential candidate in history. Someone no one has ever heard of, Alton B. Parker, who was a New York State judge. It was never heard from again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all kinds of stories here it's not just that's you know i'm gonna just predict something and that's it exactly i i wonder if there was a sweep and i figured reagan first yeah. time against carter would probably be a good one as well so so let's talk about the 13 when, when you guys came up with the 13 did you originally was it kind of like like i visualize you sitting in a boardroom you and uh, vladimir you're talking and you got 30 of them 
and he say, not this one, not this one, not this one. Did you guys go from 30 to 13 or was it no? 13 is what you came up with. No, you got it right. I don't remember exactly how many, but it was, it was somewhere like 30, 25. And the computer, you know, we're doing pattern recognition. Most models are so-called, I don't know how much you want to really get into the weeds on this, multiple regression models, big equations with parameters. We didn't do it that way. We just looked at patterns. And the computer came up with the number of keys and the decision rule that best separated stability incumbent winds from earthquakes. So we winnowed it down to 13. And you know what we did? We published it like two academics in an academic journal, the world's leading scientific journal of all things, the Journal of the United States National Academy of Sciences. And you expect oh, at least four or five people to read your journal article when you're an academic. But six people read it. And the sixth person was the science reporter for the Associated Press. And I opened my newspaper. I'm back at American University, young college professor. And there is this article, Odd Couple Discovers Keys to the White House. And it was only that article that motivated me to get out into the wider world outside of academia and become a predictor. You, you know, you know what I'm curious about. I'm curious about out of the other, you know, twelve or seventeen that didn't make it. How many of them had to do with facts? How many of them had to do with the candidate? Because you know, out of your thirteen, two is only about candidates. The other eleven is just you can pretty much measure it. And the last was, was about candidates. Yeah. For example, we had some keys relating to candidate ideology and candidate fundraising. Turns out, ideology fundraising issues are absolutely non-predictive. Wow. If you had used that in 2016, you would have predicted a Hillary Clinton landslide because on conventional candidate measures, she's way ahead of Donald Trump. Did, did looks or uh, voice have anything to do with it? The only reason I asked the question about looks or uh, voice is because you remember the first time when uh, Kennedy and Nixon got on the debate yeah. and it was on yeah. TV and Nixon hadn't shaved. He had the four o'clock shave and, you know, Kennedy went to the tanning salon the day before. He looked really good and looked better on camera than he did on uh, uh, radio. Was voice or looks, did that have anything to do with it or no? Absolutely not. Did nothing to do with it. You know, was Richard Nixon better looking than George McGovern or you know, <laughs> Hewitt Humphrey? Richard Nixon was not exactly your great looking, you know, great sounding candidate, but he won election twice. I only say that because Kennedy was a, you know, if, if you ask the ladies and you do a poll on the ladies with yeah. Kennedy, it'd well, be a hundred percent handsome looking guy right there. Well, something does come into play there and we can talk about it when we get to the keys to the two candidate keys. And Kennedy is one of my models for that. Okay. So why don't we go through the 13? Do you want to take the lead or you want me to read them off? You, you read them off. It's probably okay. easier I to go them, back I got and them right forth. here for me. So I'll go yeah, through okay. all of them here. What you have. So these are the 13 different indicators that you have. Party mandate. Before okay. we get to that member, six and you're out. Six and you're out. Six and Trump is out. Right. Sure. So so let's just go through it together. And you can tell me uh, who's uh, uh, who's out. So party mandate. Which side do you choose with that? Remember, all I need to do is say true or false. Okay. Because it's it's always based on the incumbent party. So if it's false, that's one key against them. And that one is obviously false because the Republicans took a huge beating in the midterm elections, which is that, that's what it's measured on. So one false. So one false. So that, that favors, just so the viewers watching, is that favors the Dems? 
Right. Or right. goes against Trump. Exactly. Sure. Either way. Uh, contest. Second one. Uh, no primary contest. No, Trump wasn't opposed. That one's true. Okay, got it. Three, incumbency. He's the sitting president. That one's true. No question. Third party. Ah, you know, forget about Kanye West. He didn't even make it to the ballot. That one is true. So the first four, which I call the political keys, only one false. Only one false, which is the house. He lost the house and he, they got a lot yes. of work to do win the house. Okay. Yes. So short term economy. Well, that's based on whether there's an election year recession. That was looking good until we got the pandemic recession. That one is false. Okay. Six long term economy. That was also looking good until we got this relentlessly negative growth this year that drove the average down so far. So that's the third false. Seven is policy change. Absolutely. You know, he came in intent on undoing everything Obama had done. And he's mostly done it by executive orders. But certainly the policies now are very different. That one's true. Social unrest. That was also looking good until the death of George Floyd and the social unrest raging across the land. So that one is false. So we're now at four falses. Scandal number nine. Ah, my favorite key, the scandal key. And we can talk about it, but as you know, because I wrote the book, Case for Impeachment, at the same time I predicted Donald Trump would win, I also predicted he would be impeached. Mm -hmm. And he was. He's only the third American president ever to be impeached by the full house. Richard Nixon resigned before that happened. So that one is false. That's five down. Okay, got it. Ten, foreign military failure. Well, you can argue there have been failures on uh, Bush's watch. But again, these judgments here have to be objective and nonpartisan. And they have to be based on how I called the keys since 1860. And we're talking about big, splashy failures like 9-11 uh, or losing a war. Nothing of that magnitude. So I count that one as true. So that one is true. OK, so that that favors more on Trump. So foreign yes. military success. Yeah. You know, I've looked around. He got nowhere in North Korea except to pump up uh, Kim Jong-un. Gave up Syria to the Russians, nothing accomplished there, nothing accomplished in Iran or in Venezuela. Now, recently, we did have this UAE uh, treaty Israel. with the Israelis, but it's a bogus treaty because it just says suspend annexations. And Netanyahu said he can unsuspend at any time. And the whole, you know, God knows how many hours of the Republican Convention. You've probably watched it, too. One line on the UAE treaty, one line in, in Trump's speech. That's it. So I don't count that. So that one is false. So that one is false in your eyes. We're now okay. six. Yes. Yeah, so now it's incumbent charisma. This is the one I get the most flack about. But again, it's not someone's opinion. It's how it fits my model. And this is a very high threshold key, Patrick, very high. We're talking about the once in a generation inspirational candidate, like on the Republican side, Theodore Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, who brought in all those Reagan Democrats. And to win this key, you have to be broadly appealing. Trump's a great showman, but as we know, he appeals to a narrow base, about 40 to 43 percent. And the strong approval is 25 to 30 percent. More than 60 percent of the American people don't trust him and don't like him. So that one I count as false. That's seven. 
So then that's all he needs. So And then the last one needs. is Challenger's charisma, which is Biden. So if Biden was charismatic, that would count against Trump, but he's not. You know, he's an experienced guy, decent guy, just as Trump is no Ronald Reagan. Uh, Joe Biden is no John F. Kennedy. Okay. So that one is true. But we have seven. So based on your prediction, you predict who will be president come Election Day? Yes. Based on my prediction, with seven keys down and only six to count out the party holding the White House, I predict Donald Trump will lose and therefore Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. A reversal of my prediction for Donald Trump in 2016. But so, it, remember, he was the challenger then. So yes. he didn't have to defend a record. Now he's the incumbent. He still doesn't understand that he's going to be judged on his record, not on what he says. To, to be fair with viewers watching this, somebody may say, well, he hates Trump. That's why he would go against Trump. You said Trump would win in 2016 when people thought you were crazy for choosing Trump. People thought I was nuts. And again, yeah. I teach in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you know, it's the Democrat the democratic stronghold of the world. Yes. And I was extremely unpopular. I took huge heat for it, but I did get a note and it said, professor, congrats, good call. And in big Sharpie letters, Donald J. Trump. You want to see it? I have <laughs> I it. Wanna, if you got it, let me see it. I got it. That's hilarious. Let me know if, if it's he in would, the picture. I totally see it. <laughs> there it is. Good for him. So that means you have a good collection because if your predictions are right, you're about to get a Biden autograph here soon. He better. He, he better. better. <laughs> so, or so he's going to have to answer to me. So, and by the way, you're, 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 you're obviously a Democrat, PhD Harvard, Harvard leans left. You're 19, 1993 scholar professor of the year at American University. So it's not like you're in that world. So to go against in 2016 against Hillary you probably were, you know, uh, many of the people that were having lunch with you on a weekly basis probably said, you know what, I don't know if I want to have lunch with you this week when you chose Trump. Exactly. Let me tell you something. The hardest thing about being a forecaster, it's not knowing history, although you got no history. It's not knowing politics, or you got no politics. It's not knowing math, although you got no math. It's putting aside your own political preferences. If I just made forecasts according to my political preferences, I'd be useless as a forecaster. And my training as an historian, which teaches us to look at the past in an impartial way, was critical to my being a successful, and as you say, totally impartial forecaster. Now, can I challenge you on a couple of your 13, if that's okay? Of with course. You? Okay, let's have some fun here. Okay. Absolutely. So, so on the short-term economy, how far back do you go on the short-term economy? Because if you look at the economy starting November 9th, Trump gets elected, Dow goes up 250 that day, Dow ends at 18,589. Today, the Dow is at 29,081. We're talking about a very substantial growth in the last four years, right? So short-term economy could be a true, couldn't it? No. I mean, you can have that opinion, but again, You've got to do it according to the definitions of the keys. And one of the great things about the keys, unlike most prediction systems, which are these big impenetrable equations, they're a great teaching tool and they're a great tool for discussion, right? But you got to, here's exactly what the keys says. The economy is not in recession during the election campaign. 
And we absolutely have a recession now during the election campaign. The National Bureau of Economic Research declared a recession, said it began in February. It hasn't ended. And we've had two consecutive negative quarters. So whatever else you may say, and you have a right to say it, you got to stick to the definition. I'm just trying to help you get a 10-game win streak. I mean, this is like a double-digit win streak because the, the, the one thing when you look at recessions, you know, there are certain things that you control. There are certain things that you don't control with a uh, pandemic. That is the one part where I don't know, even if your model may need to have like a disclaimer saying this model doesn't pertain to years with a pandemic because none of the years you've gone, there's been a pandemic. So there may be a good out for you. So you can be 10 for 10 because double digit winning streak in baseball, basketball, NHL is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And, you know, every four years, someone comes to me and says, your model is not going to work this year because we have an African-American running. We've never had that before. Or we have a woman running. We've never had that before. Your model is not going to work. And here's my answer. If you remember retrospectively, the model goes all the way back to 1860. Yeah. Women didn't vote. My ancestors from Eastern Europe weren't even here yet. Neither were your ancestors even here yet, right? We had an agricultural economy. We had no polls, uh, no radio, no automobiles. And so it's what we call a very robust model that's lasted through enormous changes. The Civil War, the Great Depression, World War II, and of course, the aftermath of an even worse pandemic right after World War One. The only reason I say this is the following. So I've been in a financial industry 20 years. I got out of the army. I went to Morgan Stanley Dean Wooder day before 9-11. So I remember when a market tanked right after 9-11. The, the way people handled their finances was very weird and different. Nobody wanted to sit down and talk to you about stocks, mutual funds, money under management. They were a little bit more hesitant. In 08, when the market tanked, you remember 08, when the market tanked 38% in a year, 401ks became 201ks and you know, short sales, you know, places like Riverside had 65% turnover with their property, just a very scary time. Even though there was quantitative easing and bailout, American people didn't get $600 a week every week. So I felt it as an advisor when I was dealing with clients, they were struggling financially. But during this pandemic, I got to tell you, Alan, when you're dealing with customers and you're talking to them, even though 55 million people may be unemployed, it doesn't give the feeling. I'm a day-to-day -day person, so I'm dealing with people regularly. It doesn't give the same feeling of recession as an 08 or even slightly in an 01. It's very different language out there because people are financially not doing as bad as they did in 08 or 01. What do you think about that? Well, again, I don't look behind the keys. As Herbert Hoover, a man who should know, certainly said, presidents get the credit for the sunshine and the blame for the rain. You know, he didn't cause the Great Depression, and yet it caused the crash of his presidency and the crash of his Republican Party. But I would say further that while you may say the pandemic, you know, is an act of God, it was Donald Trump's botched response to the pandemic that has put us into the economic difficulties that we see today. I know he takes no responsibility for that. But as Herbert Hoover said, when you are the president, you cannot escape responsibility. Moreover, I would say the economic, again, just to answer your argument, no, I'm, because I'm, the key is the key. We, this is much worse than 
most previous recessions, much worse than the George H.W. Bush recession of 1991-92, much worse than the 1960 recession that Richard Nixon had to face. You know, it may not be as bad as the Great Recession of 2008-2009, but you know what? My good friend, you may have heard of him, the late, great Jack Germond, the journalist, the fat man in the middle, had this to say. He said, there's an economist at every street corner in Washington, D.C., and not one agrees with any other. <laughs> so I stick to the objective model. Well, here. I, I respect that. I respect that. I just, I, I just wonder. I wonder if there isn't. Because let me tell you, when I read your 13 uh, uh, markers that you guys have, the indicators, it's brilliant when you think about it. And, but I think there is an element of opinion there. There's a little bit of room for opinion because, you know, even right now when you said, you know, you may say the pandemic was, uh, you know, from, you know, not something that we could have prevented. It kind of happened, even though we shut down China, et cetera, et cetera. Still, Herbert Hoover says if it happens during your term, it happens during your term. And Trump didn't take responsibility for anything. Say you're right about all of that. There's a part of it that's opinion. I wonder if there's an out there for these 13 indicators. The other one is charismatic. You know, when you think yeah. like- let, let me comment on that. Please. Because you make a yeah. great point there. And when I first came out with the keys, I was slammed for that very thing. The professional forecasters, the political scientists, and by the way, you know as well as I, political science is not hard science. But the political scientists, the forecasters were saying, come on, Lickman, you committed the great sin, the sin of subjectivity. You've got some judgment in your keys. And my answer is, I'm an historian. I know that you cannot reduce the human world to pure numbers. It doesn't work. Even the big, you know better than I, even the big econometric models, the Wharton School, they don't work very well to predict the, the economy. There has to be an element of judgment. It took about 10 to 15 years. And then the political forecasting world realized that the most successful models are like the keys, which combine purely numerical measures like midterm election results with measures with some judgment, not random judgment, because you got to go with how it's defined in the model. And the keys became the hottest thing in forecasting. I twice keynoted, keynoted the International Forecasting Summit. I published in all the big forecasting journals. You know, I was interviewed by great people like you all over the world. So yes, you know, there is an element of judgment, but I don't think that invalidates the system. I think it makes it stronger. Well, I mean, that, that's the part. That's what makes it uh, uh, impressive. But that's what, what also, if you get this one right, let me tell you, this one's going to be very impressive for you to hit double digit. Uh, uh, really? Uh, <laughs> I, it it'll be very impressive because when I look, the only th factor for me is two factors. One is that one. And even military success, you gave it false, which... On the, on the military success, one could argue the UAE and Israel. One could argue Soleimani because Soleimani was, uh, 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 you know, I'm from Iran myself. So being somebody that's from Iran and I was in the U.S. Army and, you know, follow military based on what's going on and all the proxy wars that was going on. Soleimani was a leader behind a lot of these proxy wars taking place. So one could say Soleimani was a military success similar to when Obama had you know, Osama bin Laden, that was a military success. So that one could also be a little bit debated. What are your thoughts? Yeah, here's the difference. There are two things when you read the book and when everyone buys my book, Predicting the Next President, The Keys to the White House, 2020. Number one, it has to be 
big enough to be consistent with the way the key was called. This is a high threshold key. Number two, it has to be of great substantive significance. And, you know, there are lots of, I'm not a Middle East expert. There are lots of Middle East experts who said that killing made things less safe, less stable in the Persian Gulf. I don't know if that's true, but there's a lot of division unlike other big foreign policy successes. Then it has to be broadly recognized. I promise you, 90% or more of the American people could not name General Soleimani. Osama bin Laden was a household name before and after he was killed. He was public enemy number one. He was the international Al Capone, Soleimani, unknown to Americans, still unknown to Americans, and it's unclear whether anything is different in the Persian Gulf. And they hardly mentioned it in their convention. If this was a big deal, you know, it would have been featured in the convention. It was barely mentioned, only in Trump's speech. I notice you, you go to convention a lot. So do you gauge a lot also what the uh, incumbent is talking on their speech at their convention? Is yes, that that's very important, what okay. they think is important. And by the way, well, aside here, I love virtual conventions. I've been to conventions. And you know why people go to conventions? To party. Because the conventions don't do anything. The nominee is already selected. So think of the carbon footprint we've saved. Think of the money we've saved by having virtual conventions. Plus, previously in the in-person conventions, no one could hear the preliminary speeches because Delegates are milling around the floor. They're talking. No one pays attention until you get the president, the vice president. Now, in the virtual convention, Everybody everyone is. comes across crystal clear. Interesting. Very, very good point, by the way, what you're saying, Darren. And, and just so you know, our, our viewers who uh, own local bars near where conventions are being done, they're offended by your comments, just so you know. I'm that. sure they are. And they are very that's a good point the on the other you, side. You're, you're minimizing all the after business. parties taking place. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but anyways, let's continue. OK, so so far we've done a couple. And by the way, Soleimani, in many military generals eyes, he was the right hand guy. I mean, he was the one that made things work and he was feared by a lot of people because he had so many strong contacts on the other side. But fine, let's just say you're right. He is not Osama bin Laden. Again, the element of judgment is the one that I, I like when you say there's the element of judgment. That's and why we can discuss it. We can't discuss I, I love that. the Wharton model, you know. I'm, 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 this is why I'm, I, I this is why I invited you because I really like your style on how you are and how you go back and forth, and you're very open about it. So this last one is the incumbent is not charismatic. Okay? Right. I so give you, the charisma key to neither Trump nor Biden. That's right. I mean, so let me ask you a question: Would you consider yeah. yourself charismatic? I have no idea. I think you're very charismatic. I'm not, I, you know, no, no, the one I'm, time I'm, I ran for office, I did terribly. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but I say, I say most guy, if I were to say right now, without showing the face, my next guest is going to talk to us about predicting the next president. He's a historian. If I told him judge the speaker based on him being a historian, 80% of people will be logging off because a historian is going to yeah. talk like this. Well, uh, yes, as a doctor, I've been in the... In, in the <laughs> oh, you don't it. talk you're like right. that. You've got a personality. Right. So you know you're your right. world. They're boring people when yeah. you listen to them. All right, let me tell you, though, the difference. Unlike me, we have metrics to measure Donald Trump. And we can measure those metrics against 
the once in a generation inspirational candidates. You can't call someone broadly inspirational when over 60 percent of the American people don't trust him and don't like him. And he's never come close to 50 percent approval. And a strong approval is 25 to 30 percent. I've been hit by a lot of people who say, well, he's charismatic to his base. And I agree with that. But that's not the definition of the key. Okay, so, Alan, you are smarter than I am, more educated than I am, more experienced than I am. And I'm, you know, uh, you know, I'm this is your world. Okay. whenever anyone says that to me, I start to worry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but here's the part. What show? have you watched over and over and over again? Like if you were to say, Pat, you know, I'm a CSI guy, or, you know, I've watched, uh, I don't know, maybe you're a Narcos guy. I can't put you on a certain show that you'll watch (laughs) over and over again. What is a show that you'll watch over and over and over again for years? Like, are you friends? I don't know. What what was the show that you watched over and over again? New York Yankees baseball. New York being a being a native New Yorker. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I respect that because I am trying to get my hands on a 1952 tops Mickey Mantle PSA 10 and only three people own it. And the two don't want to sell them. One of them does, but he's asking for a lot of money. I'm a Yankees guy as well. So, but here's my point to you. My point to you is this. Do you think somebody who lacks charisma could have a show on TV that lasts 15 seasons, Alan? You got to have charisma for advertisers to say, we like advertising during the show ran by this guy who keeps telling people you're fired. What do you think about that? Hey, you know, I never watched the show. I have to tell you once. So I'm I'm the wrong person, but we're not judging him on his TV show. Come on. We're judging him on his performance as a candidate and president. And when over 60% turn thumbs down, and when he has one of the narrowest bases in the history of the presidency, he doesn't fit my definition. He may fit some other definition, yeah. and that's fine. But if you're going to call the keys, you've got to call them within the context of my definitions. You can have a different opinion, and that's fine, but that's not the keys. So I've gone through your keys, and based on your keys, the score I have is 9-4 Trump, okay? Okay. The keys I have. Now, listen. My what's your track record of predicting elections? (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I'm I'm not intruding in your realm. (laughs) Well, listen. If Here's what I'm willing to do. If you get it right, I'll get you the best seats on Yankees. You tell me which ticket you want season. I'll get you the sickest seats wherever you want for four people. Take your family. If I win, you come back and you say, Pat, you were right. Is that a fair deal? Deal. You know, I got deal. I got to tell you something, Pat. I'm 73, right? I've been doing this since almost before you were born, right? Since 1982. (laughs) And it's every four years I get butterflies in my stomach. It's hell of a thing to put yourself on the line. I bet. I got a lot of respect. Every four years. I bet. And everyone is just waiting for you to be wrong so they can pounce on you, right? You know, I've been right nine times, but all anyone will look at would be if I'm wrong this time. And I got to tell you two other things two things outside the realm of the keys that keep me up at night. One is voter suppression. We saw that in Florida in 2000. That's why that election got screwed up. Now it's nationwide. And here's the thing. The Republican base is old white guys like me. You can't manufacture more old white guys. Can't make us live, unfortunately, to be 150. But what you can do is restrict 
the voting of the Democratic rising base of minorities and young people. And Trump has been fiercely trying to do that. And his guy at the post office has messed up the post office, which is going to make it very difficult to get mail-in ballots, an essential thing during the pandemic in on time. Second thing is Russian intervention. We know they're here. They're setting mm-hmm. up already all of these trolls on behalf of Donald Trump. They're probably better at it this time because they've had all that experience. And we know Trump will welcome it and exploit it just like he did in 2016. And by the way, don't read the Mueller report. The Mueller report is, the, to me, the biggest embarrassment and disappointment in modern history. Read the bipartisan report of the Republican-controlled Senate Intelligence Committee. It goes way beyond the disappointing Mueller report to prove collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. That's that's a, that's a, 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 that's a fair assessment because, uh, you know, when it comes down to the meddling part, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we have been meddling. America has been meddling with other people's elections for God knows more than any other countries has ever meddled into our elections. You know this. We're famous for meddling in other people's elections. I mean, even I had a guest on a month and a half ago, John Perkins. He wrote a book called Economic Hitman, which you probably know, John uh, uh, Perkins, if you don't. His business model is how to meddle in other people's elections who have resources, countries with resources. So I think this meddling stuff is going to keep going on and people are just getting very good at hacking. But, you know, to go back and see who you picked, just to go back and see who you picked. You picked Reagan. okay? and uh, very impressive to pick Reagan in 81, 82, two years before. Unbelievably impressive. Okay. Bush 88. Uh, 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 okay, fine. Bush 88 makes sense. There was an em- embarrassing moment for his opponent. Wait, wait, wait. Let me stop you. Let me stop you. I picked Bush 88 in May of 1988, long before the Willie Horton ad, the tank. By, uh, oh, the long before the tank. the tank. Long before the tank. Long before. Okay. May of 1988. Impressive. So let me ask you that. Bush, let me finish. When yeah. Bush was 17 points behind Michael Dukakis, Perfect. I wrote, he's a shoe into it. And again, people thought I was crazy. Wow. Okay, let's, let's go through every one of them. I'm actually curious now. When did you choose 92 Clinton against Bush? Was it before the debate that the lady asked, hey, President Bush, how do you feel about the national debt? And he says, what, you don't think I'm affected by it? <laughs> and you know which one you I'm know, talking about. Did you choose was, before that? I th- yes, but I chose that 92 and 2016 were my latest calls. And the reason... Okay. They were both six key elections. And in 92, you may remember this crazy guy, Ross Perot. He's in. He's out. He's mm. in. He's out. And it right. was very, and that was the sixth key, the third party key That's that right. decided the election. And so it was very difficult for me to make that call until finally that we knew sense. Ross Perot really was in. That very makes, tough call. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying that. So then you have 2000 Bush. Which, okay, 2000 crazy, Bush. crazy. We, we already went through that crazy situation. Yeah, and then 04, and then Obama. And uh, when you did Obama against uh, Hillary, and you did Obama, I'm sorry, Obama against uh, McCain. Uh, McCain, and then you did Obama against uh, uh, Romney. Romney. What was the score when you did it? I'm so yes. curious out of the 13. Yeah, these were overwhelming scores. I called 2008 in early 2006. Again, almost three years ahead of time, because I saw how many of the keys were going to fall in a very difficult second Bush term. 
In fact, I became infamous for saying this early, that the Democrats could pick a name out of the phone book and elect that person president. And that's kind of what they did, right? Whoever heard of Barack Obama, you know, one-term back senator. Then. Yep. Yeah. One-term senator. Uh, so what was the He wasn't even a senator yet then, I don't think. I think he was elected in 2006. So uh, he wasn't even a senator when I called it. Uh, and then I called 2012, which is a very hard to call election, in January of 2010, because again, I could early see the keys lining up. And I got a blistering attacks from none other than, you may have heard of this guy, Nate Silver, right? 1911, out of the blue, gratuitously, he writes a 20-page attack on my prediction, saying, you can't predict this early, this is ridiculous, can't do it. I wrote a big response. It was great. And of course, I was ultimately right. And then much later, based on the polls, he came, comes along. So I write him an email and I said, Nate, let's do a joint article showing how two different analysts using utterly different methods came to the same answer. Never heard from him again. Never heard of him. Wow. <laughs> never, never. He never answered my email. And by the way, you said 1911. I'm assuming he wrote it in 2011. 2011. Right? Okay, yeah. Got it. So even so, I wasn't around in 1911. No, exactly. That's what I figured. You yeah. tried to say. Good, I good catch. Yes. So, I'm a little dyslexic in my old age. It's it's all good. I have other issues, but uh, you know, it's it's totally fine. So now he, here's the, here's the other thing to be think, uh, thinking about. You know, in October, everybody's got something up their sleeves. Well, I'm going to pull this card. Oh, we have this recorded tape of Trump with uh, this woman, or we have this you know, four people that are going to come out against Biden, or we have some new stuff that's going to come out from Epstein or Jelaine Maxwell, or we have some stuff that's going to come out from the RNC or the DNC. You're saying anything that comes out is irrelevant. Exactly. Keep your eye on the big picture and don't worry about this day-to-day -day stuff. Look, these media pundits, they're all friends of mine, and they're terrific, they're smart, but they have a handicap that I don't have. They have to cover the election every single day. So they got to make a big deal out of all of these, you know, day to day events. They just can't say Lickman predicts Biden. See you in three months. <laughs> they wouldn't sell a lot of ads like that. So, so exactly based on your model, though, if there is no third party, debates are irrelevant. Yeah, debates are irrelevant. Let me tell you something, too, about this, you know, the media and the candidates. You may know that in 1961, the great Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, gave the most famous farewell address ever, where he warned about the country being in the grip of the military-industrial complex. This is from the war hero. And the military-industrial complex is based on what we call the Iron Triangle. Uh, the defense contractors who make money, the members of Congress who want defense industries in their districts, and the military that wants all this hardware. Well, we now have a political industrial complex with its own iron triangle. There are the pollsters, the consultants, the ad men who make huge amounts of money on this notion that the election is decided by all these day-to-day -day events. Then there's the media that makes huge money covering the election day by day. And then there are the candidates who are afraid to go against the media and the consultants. And I've been screaming for four years to try to break this iron triangle, but like the one on the military industrial complex, it's very hard to break.
Yeah. So, so again, to go back to it, debates irrelevant. You, so no matter what can be said, so no, no one liner that comes back and nowadays a video goes viral, gets 150 million views, irrelevant in your eyes. Hillary Clinton won all the debates by all the polls, won them handily, made no difference in the election. John Kerry in 2004 won the debates, made absolutely no difference. Huh. Interesting. That's, uh, and, and by the way, how about this other one here? I'm just trying to pull right now to see if you're going to say anything. But I'm, I'm very, you're April 4th. My dad's April 10th. You're not cracking. I mean, you're like, uh, you're staying strong. You know, you're, you're not, you're not saying anything that there's any possibilities. How about this one here? So this whole thing with uh, COVID, you know, CDC comes out two days ago saying 96% of the causes of the 150,000 people that died, the number one reason wasn't COVID. It was something else. Only 6% cause was COVID. What do you think about that data that comes out? Is that any leverage that gives Trump or no? I'll get to that in one second, but let me follow up on, on, on your comment about my not crack. You may not know this, but another thing I do is I've been an expert witness in 100, 100 civil rights cases, big cases in Texas and Florida, North Carolina, California, Wisconsin. I have been cross-examined for eight hours, you know, by some of the best wow. lawyers in the world who want to take my head off. So, you know, I'm used to taking the heat. And again, the secret of the keys is nothing matters unless it turns a key. If that opens up the economy and all of a sudden, you know, we have an economic miracle, you know, where we have 60% growth that wipes out the negative growth of the first two quarters, that will change a key. But unless it changes a key, I can't go outside my system. Because if I go outside my system, I've counterfeited my own system. I, I, I cannot do that. But let me just comment as an expert in history and politics, leaving Please. aside my system. And I wrote about this in the case for impeachment. The most important thing you have as president is your credibility. Well, Trump has lost all credibility on COVID, you know, promoting quack cures like swallowing bleach and putting ultraviolet light into your body, saying 99% of cases are harmless, kids are immune. He no longer has any credibility. So anything coming out of this White House on COVID, the great majority of the American people aren't going to believe it because there is no credibility. Okay. All right. I mean, that's all I got for you. You did, a, you did great, just so you know that. Now, my only questions I got for you have nothing to do with this. I'm just curious to know what you can say about this since you've been around uh, the block. So 1970, American people, this is a poll that came out. I know you love polls. This is a poll that came <laughs> out. This is a poll that came out that said in 1970, during the Walter Cronkite era, 80% of the American people trusted the media. That same poll that came out, said 20% of people trust the media today. You've been around. What's changed in the last 50 years? Yeah, a couple of things have changed. The more important thing is people's views of their government. You know, at, you know we talk about the Kennedy era, you know, as, as this shining moment like Camelot under King Arthur. And obviously that's a myth. But one thing that is true, it used to be 70, 75, 80% of the American people thought that their government most of the time worked for them. Now we're down to 20% of the American people 
believing that. So both the media and the government have collapsed in terms of public trust. And this is a huge crisis for our democracy because if people can't believe in reliable sources of information and people can't believe in long established institutions, then our democracy is in a lot of trouble. And you know, because you've had experience abroad, democracies are fragile. You know, we tend to believe, oh, American democracy can never collapse. But you know as well as I, in the great era, first great golden age of democracy after World War I, there were dozens of democracies. By the mid-1940s, we were down to 12. So, and according to Freedom House in the last 10 or 15 years, 25 democracies. They haven't become complete autocracies, but they have greatly declined in their democratic strength. So is that is that something? So if you're saying right now that when it comes down to the democracy, you know, with 20 percent, we don't trust the media, nor do we trust the government. I'm not sure it's 20 percent. Let, I, I think it's higher than that. I think it's sure. more like 40 percent. But let's just say we don't. I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And if it's a bad thing, who do we trust? Who do the American people lean on trusting uh, to give the right source? Well, you know what what's happened, unfortunately, is people tend to trust the media that echoes their own views. Those who watch Fox News are fundamentally different than those who uh, watch MSNBC. And while these are all long term trends, all these trends has been greatly exacerbated by Donald Trump. You know, Richard Nixon famously said the media is the enemy of the people. Right. But he said it in private. People don't realize he never said that in public. Trump has had said that dozens of times in public and has tweeted attacks on the media over 1,500 times since he took office. And we know the ways in which he has been divisive racially, uh, gender, religion. So we've had a president who loves chaos and loves division, and that's been a huge problem. It's very impressive on how much you love President Trump. It's uh, it's uh, it's felt. It's just it, it, it oozes out of you. You know, you just kind of. <laughs> so hey, I'd love to have a president I could trust. <laughs> when's the last time you had that? Uh, I trusted Obama. I have I have a lot of criticisms of Obama. I'm not just fawning on Obama, but one thing for the most part, he could be trusted. Cool. Let's do a quick uh, speed round. I'll give you a name. Tell me the first thing that comes out, comes to your mind. Okay, so. Uh, 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 Al Gore. Al Gore, boring. Nixon. Crook. Roger Stone. Crook. Joe Biden. Decent but boring. Clinton. Uh, Bill, Bill Clinton. Not a uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, brilliant but flawed. Hillary. Two. Uptight. Obama. Brilliant, but never understood the political role of the president. Interesting. Trump. Dishonest, divisive. Cuomo. Which? Uh, Andrew Cuomo. Mixed, kind of, you know, coming into his own, but made, made mistakes too. Vladimir Kelis Borak. Brilliant, great guy. May he rest in peace. Absolutely. 
Tucker Carlson. Inflammatory. Dishonest. AOC. Inflammatory. Uh, maybe the future. Bernie Sanders. Inflammatory. No longer the future. Anderson Cooper. Solid. Solid. Okay. We'll finish on solid. I think it's good to finish on a good note. You know, we'll say Anderson Cooper solid. <laughs> and you can say, I'm, you know, I was brutally honest with you. I yeah, wasn't I just I, whitewashing every Democrat. But I tell you what, that's what I appreciate about you. Because when I, when I saw how you were, I said, I mean, I even saw what you said on Bill Maher. You said something about Republicans have no principles, but they have spine. Democrats are with principles, but without any spine, you know, with no spine. I mean, you've made some very direct call outs to Republicans. You don't hold back, but at the same time, you'll say 2016 Trump wins. So the audience needs to know how much you're against Republicans, but you're still willing to go based on your 13 indicators and say who's going to win and who's going to lose. That's correct. It is critically important if you're going to deal with political forecasting, as hard as it is to put aside your own political views. Otherwise, why bother? You're useless as a forecaster. You'll be wrong half the time. But I got to tell you, since I've been even handed in my predictions every four years, I make half the country really, really mad at me. And since I've been doing this for 40 years, the whole country is really, really mad at me. That's why everyone is waiting to pounce on me if I'm wrong. It's very hard to not like you. Uh, you don't have I don't have to agree with you, but it's very hard not to like you. Uh, uh, you're, you're, well, I like you, too. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this time with you. So. I guess on November 4th, unless if Goldman Sachs is right, because Goldman Sachs is saying this thing's going to take 35 days and they're going to do the recount kind of like it was with Gore and they did 32 days. So I don't know what if they're not right, either I owe you on November 4th four tickets to Yankees game. You tell me which game or you're going to come back as a guest and we'll have a friendly conversation together. Take care, my friend. Take care. You as well. Bye bye. Bye bye. So now that you know the 13 indicators, I'm curious, who do you think is going to win the election? Comment below, Biden or Trump? I want to know because his score of 7-6, there's a part of it that's judgment, but I wonder what you think about him. By the way, if you want to get his book, we're going to put his bink, uh, a link to his book below. They can go purchase again. Follow him on Twitter. Send him a message as well. And if you enjoyed this interview today, I have another interview I want you to watch with, Rod, with Roger Stone, who's on the complete opposite side of Lickman. You, you get a, a, a chance to kind of decide for yourself on how these two different powerhouses, one's a guy predicts presidents, the other one's a good marketer that knows how to make presidents. If you haven't seen the interview with Roger Stone, I think you'll enjoy it. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.